Well, please turn in your Bibles to or please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 66. Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 66. Jesus here is fast approaching his death, his death on that Roman crucifix. And here we see Jesus being condemned, not only by the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, but ultimately by Pontius Pilate. So Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66, and we'll be reading through 20, uh, chapter 23 through verse 25 this morning. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy an inspired word to us this morning. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look! Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. 
But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. These are words that we recently confessed together in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Moreover, in our narrative before us, we see this taking place. Jesus Christ suffered and was condemned by Pontius Pilate. Now, are these words merely indicating for us the historical context of the gospel narrative? Or are they relevant to our Christian life for our comfort and hope and sustenance? Well, I'd like to argue for the latter. This phrase in our creed, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, is given to us not just to indicate the historical context of Jesus' life, but it's given to us to assure us, to comfort us, and to give us hope in the midst of, of the darkness in which we find ourselves. Well, what's going on in this passage? Well, Jesus, uh, Jesus begins by coming before the, the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities of his day, the Jewish authorities of his day, and you'll notice that the case that they bring against Jesus is that he's a false prophet. He has been blaspheming. And according to the Old Testament law, for instance, such as Deuteronomy 13, false prophets deserve to die. They are to be condemned to death. This is the verdict of the religious authorities and leaders. But because the Jewish nation is not an independent nation, they are ultimately under Roman rule, they need to get Pilate's go-ahead before they can eradicate Jesus. So they bring Jesus before Pilate, the local Roman governor. Now you'll notice that the case that they bring against Jesus when they're before Pilate is different than the case that they brought up when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin. Now they say that Jesus is a king, or he's claiming to be a king who is drawing people away from Caesar. They're presenting Jesus as a rebel, as an insurrectionist. This is intentional. Pilate doesn't really care about blasphemy or, or being a false prophet, but what will get Pilate's attention is a rebel, an insurrectionist. 
The Romans gave the Jews quite a bit of autonomy in, in, in being able to govern themselves, but one thing that they had zero tolerance uh, with regard to is, is rebellions, insurrections. And so this is the thought behind the case that the religious leaders bring against Jesus. Well, how does Pilate respond? He examines the case. He says, I don't see anything, anything worthy in Jesus that would make you put him to death. He seems innocent to me. But he hears that Jesus is actually a Galilean. And Galilee is Herod's jurisdiction. Pilate then tries to quite conveniently punt the situation to Herod. Go, go, go bring this case to Herod. Let him deal with it. And so the Jews bring uh, Jesus to, to Herod. And Herod comes really to the same conclusion as Pilate. I don't see anything in Jesus that's worthy of, of death. So Herod and his soldiers mock him a little bit and send him back to Pilate. Pilate, you deal with him. Well, Pilate again comes to the same conclusion. I don't see anything that Jesus has done that would merit death. But he's in a predicament. On the one hand, he wants to uphold justice. He doesn't want to condemn an innocent man. But on the other hand... He has a Jewish people who are pretty enraged at this point, who want Jesus' blood to be spilled. So Pilate tries to strike a deal. He says, let's come in the middle. I'll just flog him, punish him, and then release him. That way I'm not condemning an innocent man to death, but at least he gets punished. Well, the Jews don't like that. And notice that it's not just the religious leaders at this point. It's even the crowd. Just a few days before, when Jesus was teaching in the temple, it seemed as if the crowd was on Jesus' side. This is part of the reason why the religious authorities didn't want to condemn Jesus or, or arrest Jesus during the daytime in the temple. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowd. The crowd seemed to have been on Jesus' side just days before. But now the crowd seems to have flipped now the crowd is on the side of the religious authorities. They want Jesus to be crucified. What Pilate ends up doing then is he ends up giving in to the wishes of, of the Jews because in his mind he'd rather condemn an innocent man to death than have to deal with a Jewish mob on his hands, a rebellion. And so he condemns Jesus to death by giving him over to the Jews while at the same time releasing Barabbas, a convicted insurrectionist and murderer. That, in, in, a, in a quick summary, is what's going on here. Jesus is condemned, not only by his own people, but the Sanhedrin. He's condemned by Pilate, the local Roman magistrate. Now, this is a dark day. This is Good Friday. Jesus, in this passage, is being condemned to death. The Son of God himself is being condemned to death by a human magistrate. This is a dark day. Now, you'll notice that the disciples don't show up at all in this narrative. Well, what I'd like us to do at this point, just for a few moments, is to reflect upon what the disciples may have been feeling in this moment. Now, I, I don't intend for this to be speculative. We do have quite a bit of information in the, the, 
the context of this narrative, that is in the passages that precede it and the passages that come after it, with regard to how the, the disciples were feeling during this climactic, these climactic moments of, of the Passion Week. So let's take Peter, for instance. We have recently heard that uh, Peter confessed to Jesus that he was willing to suffer and die with him. And then when Jesus' captors came just hours before, the night before, this narrative, what does, Jesus do, uh, what does Peter do? Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of the, 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 the high priest's servant. Jesus, in response, says, Peter, put away your sword. When temptation comes, don't wield the physical sword. Wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in prayer. Last week, we saw how Peter then denied our Lord three times. So imagine Peter was, was feeling many emotions at this time, but imagine that, that some of the emotions that, that, Jesus, that Peter would have been feeling during these events would have been anger and frustration. Peter confessed that he was willing to fight to the death with Jesus to establish his earthly theocracy. Peter has, has witnessed for the last three years Jesus' power and authority over nature, sin, sin, disease, and death. And now Jesus seems to just be taking it rolling over, allowing his enemies just to walk all over him. Jesus is turning the other cheek, telling Peter to put away his sword. Imagine the anger, the, the frustration that he may have felt at this time. You know, Jesus, I, I don't know. What have I been doing these last three years? Are you worthy of, of me following you? I kind of want to follow someone who's inspiring, someone who's wanting to fight the enemies of God, to fight Caesar and restore the kingdom to Israel. What is this? What are you doing? I know you have the authority to, to put to death these captors who are wanting to put you to death. Why are you just rolling over, turning the other cheek? Uh, James and John may have been feeling these, these same emotions. These were the disciples who earlier in the gospel asked Jesus if they can call down fire upon the village that rejects Jesus. How disillusioning would that be if you're expecting Jesus to come wielding the physical sword and he comes with this non-retaliatory ethic? What's going on? Imagine, uh, think for a moment of the two disciples that we'll learn about in Luke 24 as they travel from Jerusalem to Emmaus the morning of, of the first Easter. Their heads are down. Jesus, who has recently rose from the dead, conceals his identity and comes to these two disciples and asks, well, why the long face? Disciples respond by saying, are you really the only person in these parts who, who doesn't know what has recently taken place? Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, is dead and buried. The one whom we left everything for to follow is dead. The one whom we have devoted everything to the last three years is gone. Talk about crushed expectations. Think for a moment of those times when you place high, high expectations upon someone or something 
only to see that thing or that person completely underwhelm you. What do you feel in that moment? Probably feel a lot of things. You might feel a bit despondent, discouraged, but you may feel just apathy, numb inside. I just don't care anymore. Fear and anxiety may have captured the hearts of these disciples and may have finally dawned upon them that the outcome of Jesus' life may very easily be the outcome of their life. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, will they not persecute you as well? Those words that Jesus spoke earlier may have been ringing in their ears as they heard Pilate's metaphorical gavel coming down upon Jesus. They may have been fearful over their future. What does this mean for us, our vocation, our calling? Think about when something traumatic happens. Our minds usually go to the future. What does this mean for my future? Questioning. Has God forgotten his people? Has God's promises failed? We thought this was the Messiah, the Christ. He wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to renew the kingdom. He was supposed to be a greater David and Solomon. And put those Romans under our heels. But he's dead. Or he's going to die in the context of this narrative. This is a very dark day. Now, of course, you and I, we weren't there on Good Friday. But imagine that we all have our own dark days. Now, these dark days might be the dark valleys of difficult circumstances. Things such as sicknesses or illnesses, death of loved ones financial insecurity or instability, just unmet expectations, hopes, desires, disappointments, setbacks in life. When our life just does not go as we envisioned it to go, the dark valleys of difficult circumstances. Sometimes our dark day is the, uh, a dark night of the soul. When our circumstances seem to be going fairly well, but we have this inward turmoil and angst within us. Anxiety, depression, ruminations, unwanted thoughts and feelings that come upon us like a wave that we can't control. We have our own dark days. And oftentimes when the darkness hits, we feel very similar to what the disciples were feeling on this dark day in history. We might feel that anger and frustration, questioning God. You know, God, I've, I've sought to do my part. I go to church, I tithe, I seek to raise my family in the Lord. I seek to be a decent and moral person, but yet all I seem to be receiving from your hand is trial and tribulation. Is it worth it? And, and saying nothing for the church, which can seem to be marred with division and strife and weakness. Is it worth it? Should I just walk away from it all? Or we might feel like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where we're praying and praying and praying and praying, and yet we come against, we seem to come against this wall of silence, apathy. And we just feel that numbness inside. 
We might be questioning. How do we square my circumstances with God's promises? Has God forgotten his people? Has God forgotten me and his promises to me? We have our own dark days, and we oftentimes feel as these disciples felt on this very dark day in history. So what comfort, what hope does this passage give us in the midst of the darkness? Because this is a dark day. These are some of the most wicked and heinous acts that have ever occurred in human history. What comforts, what hope do we receive from this narrative? Well, when we view this narrative from another perspective, from the perspective of the resurrection, this passage is actually filled with light and hope and comfort. Let me remind you of a number of themes that I've already uh, identified for you. In this passage, we see Jesus coming before a human magistrate. Pilate, the local Roman governor. And Pilate recognizes the innocence of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. But yet, what does Pilate do? He condemns Jesus as a criminal, while at the same time, he releases Barabbas, who is guilty of insurrection and murder, so that now Barabbas, according to Roman law, has the declaration of innocence upon him. Now, do these themes remind you of anything else that's going to happen on Good Friday? Think about what happens when Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus comes before not merely a human tribunal, but the divine judge of all the earth. And this divine judge recognizes the innocence of his son. This is sort of obvious. If, if Jesus himself wasn't innocent and righteous, if God the Father hadn't recognized that innocence and righteousness, then Jesus' sacrifice would have been for naught. It would have been just like another added to the thousands of people who died in Roman crucifixes in the ancient world. So God the Father recognized the innocence of Jesus. But yet God the Father condemns Jesus as a criminal, as a lawbreaker. And we... We, who have actually broken God's law, receive the verdict of innocence. We are the Barabbases of this passage. This fits in with what we have been considering the last few weeks, how, how these final sufferings of our Lord foreshadow for us what is accomplished on the cross. Where Jesus takes our condemnation so that we can receive his verdict of innocence in God's divine courtroom. This is the gospel, congregation of Christ. This is the gospel that we are called to rest in and embrace by faith. Jesus took your condemnation. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, chapter 1, after he talks about the sin that he deals with, even as a Christian in Romans 7, he can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This fits in line with how our catechism interprets this phrase in the Apostles' Creed, which again shows just how, 
how biblical our forefathers were in, in drafting some of these documents. When our catechism explains the significance of this phrase that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, it says that Christ, though he was innocent, was condemned by a temporal judge, thereby assuring us that we have been delivered from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. That gavel of, of, of Pilate's condemnation foreshadows for us God's divine condemnation that Christ takes in our place. Well, you might hear that and think, well, I mean, it's wonderful to see how these themes are fulfilled at the cross. But still, what comfort, what hope does this, this gospel give me in the midst of the darkness that I'm currently facing? Well, let me ask you, how do you interpret the darkness in your life? Whether that darkness be the dark valleys of difficult circumstances or those dark night of the souls, how do you interpret the darkness? Now, I'm not asking for your theoretical reflection and interpretation of the darkness when you sit down and, and really give time to think about it. I'm asking about that precognitive, pre-rational, intuitive response when the darkness comes. I think we all are naturally inclined to interpret the darkness in our life as a sentence of divine condemnation. Now, by divine condemnation, I don't mean that we automatically interpret these circumstances or things as, as a sign that God is now sending us to hell. No, it's more subtle than that. What I mean is, it's a sign of God's displeasure. He's just somehow not happy with me. Or a sign of God's apathy. It's as if he's just taking a nap, just completely indifferent to my circumstances and what I'm going through. He's just aloof blind to what's on my heart. This is oftentimes where our mind goes, doesn't it? Well, the Apostle Paul knows this. Very interesting, the Apostle Paul, in the end of Romans chapter 8, he's, he's speaking to Christians who are themselves struggling to believe that God's love in Christ hasn't run out for them. And so the Apostle Paul knows that oftentimes we struggle to believe God's love for us in Christ during those moments when the darkness hits. That's why Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He says, shall trial or tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, nakedness, or sword? Darkness, right? Darkness. He knows that it's in the dark days that we struggle to believe that God's love for us in Christ hasn't run out. And Paul says, by no means. Indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when we're in the dark days, and it seems as if our, our circumstances are screaming, even testifying against us, that God is apathetic towards you. God does, is displeased at you. God doesn't care. This passage speaks another word. This, this passage tells us that not only are you not under God's condemnation, indeed it would be impossible for you to be under God's divine condemnation because Jesus was condemned 
in your place so that you might have a declaration of innocence pronounced upon you and be an adopted child of God. That congregation of Christ is a status that is fixed and stable and is never in flux. So, is this phrase, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, is it relevant to us in our Christian life? Indeed, it's very relevant. We need to keep this phrase in our back pocket, as it were, and pull it out on the dark days when our circumstances are screaming at us that God is apathetic towards us. And we need to confess Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. I'm accepted and known by God himself. Well, this phrase, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, not only assures us that we are adopted, accepted, innocent in God's sight, but it also reminds us of what God is up to in the midst of our darkness. I already mentioned that this day, this Good Friday, is arguably the the darkest day in history. These events that we are reading about today are the most wicked and heinous acts ever committed in human history, barring the crucifixion itself. This is the Son of God being condemned to death. But yet, our God is so sovereign that he is able to take these ultimate acts of evil and wickedness and turn them into the ultimate gift. Think about how our perspective changes when we view it after the resurrection. Yes, this passage is wicked and evil in in terms of what Pilate and the Jews uh, are, are going to do to our Lord, but this passage also assures us that Jesus took our condemnation so that we might be declared innocent. Our God is so sovereign that he's able to take these ultimate acts of evil and wicked, wickedness and turn them into ultimate good. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 28, that for those who love God, he's, he is able to work all things for our good. The God who's able to turn These events into ultimate good is the same God who promises to do that in your life. Yes, Paul doesn't say that all things are good. No, we can call that which is wicked, wicked. But he promises that he'll work all things for good. Now, what is that good that God promises to work out of the darkness in our life? Well, boys and girls, imagine that you take your hand and cover your eyes so that all you see is darkness and black. Except there's a little crack between two of your fingers, so you can just see a speck of light coming up. Well, when it comes to how God is working the darkness into our life into good, we are not privy to most of that knowledge. But God does give us a speck. A speck, just like when you have a little crack in between two of your fingers. A speck into how God promises to work all of our circumstances into good. What is that speck? Well, Romans 8.29 tells us that for those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that we can be assured that among the many other things that God is doing, he at least is using every circumstance that comes into your life as a means of conforming you to Christ. Meaning, 
He is using every circumstance to, to bolster that bond that you have with Jesus Christ. To grow the roots, your roots, into your only comfort in life and in death. We also learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his missionary journeys to Asia, and he talks about how he and his colleagues were so severely afflicted on this journey that they felt as if they had received the sentence of death. He goes on to say that, that they despaired of life itself. But then Paul tells us what God's divine purpose was in the midst of these deep, deep afflictions. Paul says that this was so that we would not depend upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. Paul was able to say that these severe afflictions that he endured were given to him, were permitted to enter his life so that his self-autonomy and independence would be crushed and that he would deepen his dependence upon God. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. We can be assured that everything that God permits to come into our life will be used to crush our autonomy and independence and will be used to foster that humility, that humility that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, that humility before God, that childlike reverence for and trust in God as our Father. Beloved, it's that posture of the soul. It's that posture where we receive the joy, the peace, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Trying to live autonomously before God is not the place where we, where we uh, receive the joy and peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit. So among the many, many things that God is doing to work good out of our darkness, things that we, we will know on, on the last day, we can at least know in this life that God is using our circumstances to further unite us to his son and deepen our trust in him as our father. So let me say again, is this phrase, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, is it relevant? Very relevant relevant on the dark days, to remind you of what God is up to when it's hard to see any glimmer of light around you. Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. 